Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep. The Power of Words by Edgar Allan Poe. This is first published in the United States and Democratic Review, June 1845. Uh, we're told that this probably came out in May, and they're speculating as to when exactly he wrote it, probably right before it came out. Um, uh, I can't remember how I came across this, but it was probably just me digging up old Edgar Allan Poe. And it's something I've seen around. He actually has two other angelic dialogues. Um, this is the third chronologically and last. Um, but he, uh, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, he, he always is talking about angels. But, uh, you know, there's many poems where angels are referenced. Um, angel imagery is in some of his most famous poems. But this is not so much about uh, angels as it is about science, with a capital exclamation mark at the end. <laughs> <laughs> and um, that uh, led me to uh, one of the best sources for modern Edgar Allan Poe scholarship. You, you're asking me if I would say a few words about Edgar Allan Poe. I, I got to tell you, the best modern Edgar Allan go Edgar Allan Poe scholarship happening right now is in uh, a, a periodical coming out from Ahoy Comics called Edgar Allan Poe's A Snifter of Death. Uh, it also has gone by the name Edgar Allan Poe's Snifter of Blood. And they're sort of reworkings, retellings of Poe's stories. Um, hmm. And uh, often the writers seem to be like uh, teasing out little insights that I'm like, oh my God, you're right, <laughs> um, oh. when they're uh, doing stuff. And um, so I, I do recommend that journal heartily. Uh, I know that there has been some earlier post scholarship, but I actually approach this more of uh, this is a Platonic or Socratic dialogue. Um, that's <laughs> how I see it, um, and I think uh, we will perform it for our readership. Uh, what do you have any opening thoughts before we do that? I have a lot of opening thoughts. Um, for one, I, I think that you've already changed the possible experience of this for some people because it's not explicit that these are angels talking. Um, if you read this as the third of a set of dialogues, one might get that. But uh, anyway, that's that's what the second is. I don't think you mean Socratic dialogue. I think you mean Platonic dialogue. Yeah. So um, the, uh, Plato. Yeah. Plato is the author of the Socratic dialogues. Um, and he uses Socrates as his mouthpiece uh, for these things. No. But you know, I, that's no. I, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I mean, if you take a look at the uh, the Bollingen uh, edition, they're called Platonic dialogues. Uh, some of those dialogues don't, in fact, have a character named Socrates in them. The reason I make this distinction is because the term Socratic is typically used for a certain kind of educational idea where you ask questions and draw out answers and so on. And in fact, Plato has a reason for writing dialogues that um, is something he puts into the mouth of Socrates. Um, he, he argues that, that writing, as you know, um, writing will undercut people's memory uh, but but Plato and Socrates didn't write. 
I mean, he engaged in conversation. Uh, one of the reasons that that Socrates reports that write in the Platonic dialogue that writing is bad is that it will undermine memory and it cannot be interrogated. As you can't ask a, a, a page, you know, to tell you more. And so what Plato does is he mimics dialogue. He mimics asking things back and forth by using the dialogue form. It's a, a, an interesting point about the ontology of the actual words that are used. And I make that distinction here. Uh, I underline it because this is about the power of words. Indeed. I, I'm, I'm nodding my head the whole time. Socrates is, is one of the most famous philosophers ever. He wrote nothing. <laughs> Uh, wouldn't so, have gotten tenure where I taught. Yeah, he he had a, he had a, a bunch of students and they killed him for it. <laughs> yep. So um, he, he he's only able to defend himself through uh, <laughs> through history and time by the, by the power of someone else writing down words he never probably said, or at least some of them he probably never said. And so, um, yeah, it, it's interesting. We are going to do this in a medium that is recorded dialogue, which is act, an actual conversation that you and I are actually having, but people are hearing as uh, a uninterrogatable script. Indeed. So, um, Indeed. One well, of we th don't do it as a script. But it's, no, we do not. You could, you could transcribe it after the fact and yes. then not interrogate it. <laughs> I want to point out, however, um, that we, in our reading, we're going to be omitting the attributions. There's two characters who speak. Uh, we will omit those because we will do them uh, ourselves. Indeed. So you will be Oinos, mm -hmm. a name that means one or the one. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, one could think of it as some fellow there or as all people. One does this and one does that. And I will be Agathos, which is the Greek word for the good. Mm -hmm. Um and uh, this is the power of words, according, excuse me, this is the power of words according to Edgar Allan Poe. And Oinos begins. Pardon, Agathos. Pardon, Agathos, the weakness of a spirit new-fledged with immortality. You have spoken nothing, my Oinos, for which pardon is to be demanded. Not even here is knowledge thing of intuition, for wisdom Ask of the angels freely, that it may be given. But in this essence, I dreamed that I should be at once cognizant of all things, and thus at once happy in being cognizant of all. Ah, uh, not in knowledge is happiness, but in the acquisition of knowledge. In forever knowing, we are forever blessed, but to know all were the curse of a fiend. But does not the Most High know all? That, since he is the most happy, must still be the one thing unknown even to him. But since we grow hourly in knowledge, must not at last all things be known? Look down into the abysmal distances. Attempt to force the gaze down the multitudinous vistas of the stars as we sweep slowly through them thus and thus, and thus, even the spiritual vision 
Is it not at all points arrested by the continuous golden walls of the universe, the walls of the myriads of the shining bodies that mere number has appeared to blend into unity? I clearly perceive that the infinity of matter is no dream. There are no dreams in Aiden, but it is here whispered that of this infinity of matter the sole purpose is to afford infinite springs at which the soul may allay the thirst to know, which is forever unquenchable within it, since to quench it would be to extinguish the soul's self. Question me then, my oinos, freely and without fear. Come, we will leave to the left the loud harmony of the Pleiades and swoop outward from the throne into the starry meadows beyond Orion, where for pansies and violets and hearts ease are the beds of the triplicate and triple tinted suns. And now, Agathos, as we proceed, instruct me. Speak to me in the earth's familiar tones. I understood not what you hinted to me just now of the modes or of the methods of what during mortality we were accustomed to call creation. Do you mean to say that the creator is not God? I mean to say that the deity does not create. Explain. In the beginning only, he created. The seeming creatures which are now throughout the universe so perpetually springing into being can only be considered as the mediate or indirect, not as the direct or immediate results of the divine creative power. Among men, my Agathos, this idea would be considered heretical in the extreme. Among angels, my Oinos, it is seen to be simply true. I can comprehend you thus far that certain operations of what we term nature or the natural laws will, under certain conditions, give rise to that which has all the appearance of creation. Shortly before the final overthrow of the earth, there were, I well remember, many very successful experiments in what some philosophers were weak enough to denominate the creation of animalculae. The cases of which you speak were, in fact, instances of the secondary creation and of the only species of creation which has ever been, since the first word spoke into existence, the first law. Are not the starry worlds that from the abyss of non-entity burst hourly forth into the heavens? Are not these stars, Agathos, the immediate handiwork of the king? Let me endeavor, my oinos, to lead you step by step to the conception I intend. You are well aware that as no thought can perish, so no act is without infinite result. We moved our hands, for example, when we were dwellers on the earth, and in so doing gave vibration to the atmosphere which engirdled it. This vibration was indefinitely extended till it gave impulse to every particle of the earth's air, which thenceforward and forever was actuated by the one movement of the hand. This fact the mathematicians of our globe well knew. They made the special effects indeed wrought in the fluid by special impulses the subject of exact calculation, so that it became easy to determine in what precise period an impulse of given extent would engirdle the orb and impress forever every atom of the atmosphere circumambient. Retrograding, they found no difficulty from a given effect 
under given conditions in determining the value of the original impulse. Now the mathematicians who saw that the results of any given impulse were absolutely endless and who saw that a portion of these results were accurately traceable through the agency of algebraic analysis, who saw too the facility of the retrogradation, these men saw at the same time that this species of analysis itself had within itself a capacity for indefinite progress that there were no bounds conceivable to its advancement and applicability except within the intellect of him who advanced or applied it. But at this point, our mathematicians paused. And why, Agathos, should they have proceeded? Because there were some considerations of deep interest beyond. It was deducible from what they knew that to a being of infinite understanding, one to whom the perfection of the algebraic analysis lay unfolded, there could be no difficulty in tracing every impulse given the air and the ether through the air to the remotest consequences at any even infinitely remote epoch of time. It is indeed demonstrable that every such impulse given the air must, in the end, impress every individual thing that exists within the universe. And the being of infinite understanding, the being whom we have imagined, might trace the remote undulations of the impulse, trace them upward and onward in their influences upon all particles of and matter, upward and onward forever in their modulation in their modifications of old forms, or in other words, in their creation of new, until he found them reflected, unimpressive at last, back from the throne of the Godhead. And not only could such a thing do this, but at, but at any epoch, should a given result be afforded him, should one of these numberless comets, for example, be presented to his inspection, he could have no difficulty in determining by the analytic retrogradation to what original impulse it was due. This power of retrogradation in its absolute fullness and perfection, this faculty of referring at all epochs, all effects to all causes, is, of course, the prerogative of the deity alone. But in every variety of degree, short of the absolute perfection, is the power itself exercised by the whole host of the angelic intelligences. But you speak merely of impulses upon the air. In speaking of the air, I referred only to the earth. But the general proposition has reference to impulses upon the ether, which, since it pervades and alone pervades all space is thus the great medium of creation. Then all motion of whatever nature creates? It must. But a true philosophy has long taught that the source of all motion is thought, and the source of all thought is... God! I have spoken to you, Oinos, as to a child of the fair earth which lately perished, of impulses upon the atmosphere of earth. You did. And while I thus spoke, did there not cross your mind some thought of the physical power of words? Is not every word an impulse on the air? But why, Agathos, do you weep? And why, oh why, do your wings droop as we hover above this fair star, which is the greenest and yet most terrible of all we have encountered in our flight? 
Its brilliant flowers look like a fairy dream, but its fierce volcanoes like the passions of a turbulent heart. They are. They are. This wild star, it is now three centuries since, with clasped hands and with streaming eyes at the feet of my beloved, I spoke it with a few passionate sentences into birth. Its brilliant flowers are the dearest of all unfulfilled dreams, and its raging volcanoes are the passions of the most turbulent and unhallowed of hearts. <laughs> okay, so uh, uh, Edgar Allan Poe is arguably inventor of science fiction, uh, inventor of mystery, and also a uh, philosopher of science, clearly here. Um, I think there is actually a story uh, buried within this philosophical dialogue, which I think is very important and interesting. Um, but I also want to point out uh, uh, the joke. <laughs> I always love Poe's jokes. He's a very funny guy. Um, in the, uh, in the, in the uh, opening line of William Wilson, um, <laughs> there's a joke that only makes sense if you're reading it in the first edition. Here I think it's a little... W William Wilson being a short story by Poe. Yes, yes. Um, it's very clear, like, if you're, looking at, if you're looking at it in the original text, I'm like, oh, okay, now we can tell which of these two publications it was intended to be published in first. Um, but here, um, this story is called The Power of Words, and Oino says, pardon Agathos, the weakness of a spirit new-fledged with immortality. Agathos says, you have spoken nothing. <laughs> so there's a little joke about there's, there's power of words, and then it says, these, these words have no power. It's, it's kind of minor, but it's like, uh, you're saying they're not angels. I, I agree they're not exactly angels. But I oh, I didn't say they're not. I'm just, whatever they are, I don't think it's clear right at the beginning. Yeah, I mean, uh -huh. there's there's this 19th century uh, sort of, and obviously improved by Poe with his works, of thinking of the dead as angelic. Um, yeah. And these are dead people, right? <laughs> they are right. people who used to live on the earth. And angels are, you know, if you look at the Bible and look at what this, it says there about angels, angels and humans are not the same thing. They're not dead. You know, even if you become a, uh, a, a very respected dead person, you don't get wings, right? That, that's, so that's not what's going on there uh, in reality. But um, in this case, he says, the weakness of a spirit newly fledged with immortality. So he's not actually even saying, I have wings. Um, he's saying, I've been given this ability to fly, or feathers, metaphorically, so now that I can be up here above the clouds looking down on uh, creation. And then later on, we get at the end, Oinos asking uh, Agathos, hey, why, why are your wings so droopy? <laughs> so um, there, is, there is this imagery, but he, he, it's, it's throughout his, his works, including... Um, uh, the Conqueror Worm, where we find out at the end the, the play that the, these angels are so sad and mournful over is the tragedy entitled Man. Um, so there's this distancing effect that Poe's always doing um, and referring to the angels 
you know, up up in the clouds and the demons down under the sea. But it's to reflect on human humanity's place. And what I think is so fundamental about this story or dialogue is that he's saying everything is deducible from previous things. That is to say, uh, he doesn't say it, but here's an example. Helium is derivable from hydrogen, and silicon is de- derivable from helium, and uranium is derivable from other things, it, even without knowing you know, uranium exists. He's saying uh, geographic strata can explain uh, how the Earth was formed. And we, as human beings, may not get to ever find out the full truth about everything. God didn't create all of these things that you see around you, but he kicked off the universe. So this is a very deist, which is a mm, 17th century religious position, basically saying God is the prime mover who kicked off everything. And then... I think you mean 18th century. Yeah, it's more po- yeah, it's more it's much more popular in the 18th century with like the founding fathers of the US and such. Um basically they they're they're saying God is not intervening in the world on a regular basis. He does didn't create human humanity or the dinosaurs or anything like that. What he did was kicked off the universe with a certain set of rules and everything else derived from there. He so Poe is reinforcing this idea, but he's also making a philosophical statement about how human beings should perhaps uh, engage with the universe. And that is to say, we should be always interested in the collecting of and analyzing of new data so that we will become happy. But having all the facts wouldn't make us happy. It's the act. So it's it's kind of like a personal philosophy in regards to uh, a religious belief i see that i think you're right i i, I see I, I, so i'd like to make a couple of comments about that and i see some other things going on in this as well um i think that uh, although charles darwin has not published his famous work uh, at this point as it's still a decade in the future his grandfather um has in fact published Zoonomia, a verse poem that has within it the seeds of Darwinian evolutionary mm. theory. Mm. Um, so, and, and the notion of, of evolution exists before um, we get to Charles Darwin's biological evolution. Uh, his grandfather, as I said, does it in biology, but before that, we already have astronomers talking about the evolution of stars. The mm-hmm. notion that that one thing leads to another and that creation continues to create is one of the consequences philosophically of the notion that change doesn't have to be immediately created. It can be immediately created, which allows for the possibility of withdrawing God from an active role in the world and hence changes the morality of people because we need to take responsibility for ourselves. Mm -hmm. It's not as if God is making us do that. Um, And this is prescient when, when, uh, Agatho says, you know, people on earth would not like this. I'm sorry, when Oino says, people on earth wouldn't like this. And Agatho says, yes, but angels know it's true. Uh, right. That's another one of these jokes, is yep. that if you have a, a an Olympian enough, uh, a celestial enough viewpoint, you'll realize that science is right 
and belief <laughs> is wrong. So we have science here, but I think that there's something else going on. There is a story here. Yes. Oinos is not a – what we know about Oinos is that he is newly uh, – he has newly uh, gotten past his own mortality. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and he's trying to figure out, you know, now that I am, you know, going to be uh, around forever um, – don't I already shouldn't I know everything already? And mm-hmm. then and Agathos says, no, no, it's what's important to do is to keep knowing. Well, it turns out that that you get to keep knowing because there keep being more things to know mm-hmm. because more things keep being created because all causes have infinite effects. That's not really true, but that's what's being said here. Yes. Um, and it's certainly believed if you take a Newtonian uh, deterministic uh, view of the world. But Agathos is more than simply a reporter of these scientific truths. Agathos um, constructs a very clever argument. It seems to be about science, but in fact, his choice of the uh, cause, which has infinite effects, being the stimulation of the air, allows him, prepares him to be able to say, and so the first word created the first law. And he's right back to, in the beginning was the word, and the Mm -hmm. word was with God, and the word was God. Right. Um, he's right back to a religious view because he has he has made words so central, which is, of course, clear in that this is a dialogue. Mm-hmm. Words are so central. But then if words are so central and you can figure out infinite causes and infinite uh, effects, uh, how is it that you can't know everything? Well, because God himself is not allowed to, or he wouldn't be the most happy. And we can't because we are not infinite. So the possibility is theoretically there, but unachievable even to the immortals. So what does that look like in reality? What does that look like? And suddenly we get in the end. It looks like a green world. Mm-hmm. It looks like a fairy world. But it's a world created three centuries ago by Agathos himself in order to present to a woman who is not there. He weeps because he was able to create this green paradisal world and it is empty of his love. All of this dialogue... Oinos starts out by asking, what knowledge is there? And we're told, Agathos tells us, knowledge is there to be pursued, but we can never find it all. But what he doesn't tell us is some of the things we find, go, they lead nowhere else. They are the end. Mm. And the end here is the end of love. It's gone. That loss happens again and again in Poe, where young love is either unconsummated or barely consummated. And when you said, Jesse, and the angels in heaven or those under the sea, Mm -hmm. you were adducing Annabelle Lee. Mm -hmm. 
right? That poem of Poe's, which ends with, you know, so here every night, you know, I lie by the side by my, the, my, the, the, the body, my bride here in the sepulcher here by the sea. You were absolutely right, because this dialogue that seems to be about the power of words is, in fact, leading to a portrait of poor Agathos, Mm -hmm. who wishes that words had the power, but in fact, they don't. The best he could create was a gift that goes untaken, because his love is not there. He looks at it. And he weeps. The uh, phrase that he uses twice, um, analytic retrogradation, (laughs) um, is what we do when we go back and reread and say, wait, 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 what about that line? And we say, aha, this was built this way. This is how this was constructed. This is what this thing is made out of. Metal of this kind is an alloy of these two metals. And in deconstructing how things were made, we can actually construct. That's the act of secondary creation, he calls it in here. This is the phrase that uh, people often think about when they think about Tolkien. He is not creating a uh, history of the earth, usually, is what people think, although The Hobbit does say that. But rather, this is a secondary world outside of our world, that is a creation within the primary world, the one created by God. Poe is saying every movement we do of our hands through the air, of our uh, bodies through space, of of our words through the air in the vibrations they make are not lost. And memory, uh, not memory, but uh, thought is never lost. Um, And then... Oino says, wait, 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 what about uh, space? Space doesn't have any air. He says, don't worry about that, there's the ether. And now, ether is not a thing that uh, we think about much anymore. However, if you transliterate it as uh, space-time, um, yes, it's uh, the effects of my gravitation on the, on the moons of, of uh, Mars is pretty minimal, but the effect is there, <laughs> and it's important. And if you were able to do a perfect calculation, because you are a perfect calculator like God, then you would be able to appreciate the things that you spun up so long ago by your few words. And what's so cool about Poe is he is knowing all of this stuff we're talking about. And then he commits it to paper, and hundreds of years later, it seems, people are still reading his stuff and saying, oh my God, he was right. Even when he's wrong in the details. When Tolkien speaks of secondary creation, he does it in a very famous essay called On Fairy Stories. Mm. Oinos, in his last line here in this dialogue, says of the world that they're looking down on, its brilliant flowers look like a fairy dream. Unlike Tolkien, who sees fairy stories as the summation of all gospels leading to infinite hope, Oinos continues, but its fierce volcanoes look like passions of a turbulent heart. And it turns out in the last line, the turbulent heart is that of Agathos. Mm. 
if that's what immortality means, we have only begun to understand the condition of being an angel. There is indeed always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.com.